Hello! Welcome to a bonus episode of Archiving AK. I'm Arlene, and in episode 3A, I interview Justin Rollins. Dr. Rollins is an assistant professor of media studies and film studies at the Henry Kendall College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Tulsa. Recently, Justin spent several weeks with us here at Archives and Special Collections and with our neighbors at the Alaska Moving Image Preservation Association as part of his ongoing research in the area of media studies. But he explains that better than I do, so I'm going to cut to the interview. Justin, thank you for joining me. Thanks for, thanks for having me. <laughs> so, since archivists are all about context, mm -hmm. and the first thing that shows up in our collection guides are biographical notes, yeah. uh, it seems appropriate to start with a question about you. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, sure. So, my name is Justin Rollins, and I'm a, an assistant professor of media studies and film studies at the University of Tulsa. I've just finished my second year and I focus on, I think of myself as a cultural historian who focuses on film and television in the U.S. context. So I am, one of the projects I'm working on, one of the things I'm very interested in is representation and production, thinking about who, who produces media and who gets represented through media. And that's kind of what leads me to Anchorage and UAA and Archives of Special Collections. Cool. So you're working on a kind of an interesting project right now, at least I think it is. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about it and how you came to pick it? So one of the things that, that I've really become fascinated by is how Alaska gets represented in film and video both how that's how that happens right now because we're in this very interesting moment when there are dozens of reality TV series <laughs> set in Alaska and how that's how that representation is transpired uh, historically uh, given Alaska's kind of unique status within the overall US in terms of its territorial colonial history and its kind of its transition to statehood and all of that it, the project came about in a funny roundabout way in that I was working on my dissertation and taking a break from writing and I just turned on the television and there was a, a reality TV series set in Alaska. I, I want to say it was The Last Alaskans and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And during the commercial break for that, there were ads for other reality TV series also on the same network also set in Alaska. And I thought, okay, well, I know a little bit about Alaska. I know that there aren't a lot of people in Alaska. It's odd that there are so many reality series. So I looked into it, and at that point, this has been years ago, I think there were 25 or 30. A lot. All within the span of just a couple of years. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is a thing. Right. Right? Like, this is, this, there's something happening here. And I looked around for scholarship on it. There were a couple of mentions, but nothing, nothing very substantive. So I... I filed that away. It's like, okay, finish this dissertation, uh, but, but, you know, keep thinking about this, keep your eyes peeled. And even in, in, in that, the interim since, I think there've been another dozen or so series, right? And some come and go, right? right? Um, some like Deadliest Catch seem to go on. For a very infinitely. long time. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I was very fortunate in that 
I, I, I got some research funding from my home institution and I thought this would be a great time to come to Alaska and to talk to some producers, go through the, the, the archives uh, here at UAA and try to get a broader historical sense, right? Mm -hmm. Context is so important. Try to get a, a broader historical sense of what media productions have come out of Alaska because the overwhelming majority of what I've been exposed to have been producers from the lower 48 projecting their idea of what Alaska is onto Alaska for the benefit of lower 48 audiences. Right. Certainly all the reference requests we've gotten from various producers for background images and things like that have not come from Alaskan addresses. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, you kind of talked about how there really weren't any secondary sources or academic research already done on this. And, and, and that's part of the reason you went to archives. But what is it specifically that you're looking for in archives? What types of materials are you finding or trying to find? That's the million dollar question. <laughs> right. I mean, it's for especially for this particular stage. Uh, I see this as 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 the first stage in the, the broader research project. So at this stage, it's about casting a wider net and seeing what's out there. And like I said, talking to talking to you all, because um, and I think this is one of the most crucial things about archives that people who don't do archival research and aren't archivists don't quite understand is that talking to archivists is so, so important to the process of archival research because they know the collections inside and out. They know it better than anyone else. And they certainly know it better than the researcher. And there are often things that you don't know that you should be looking for inside the collection, right? On a number of occasions, you've helped steer me in particular directions, which is great because these collections are, are, are enormous, and we only have a finite amount of time as researchers. You know, I keep, I have this argument regularly, it's usually with myself, understand. I, I find that such a fascinating thing to hear, of course, because for me, most archivists, and definitely myself, we're not content experts. Right. We will never know the subject of your research as well as you do. Right. So it's kind of bridging that gap I, I might know the collections to a point. I don't remember if we've taken you on a tour and you've actually seen the collection space, but there's 8,000 cubic feet of material packed there. There's no way, mm -hmm. even if I could have at some point touched most of it, mm -hmm. my brain would have the capacity to even remember the slightest portion of it. It's yeah. why we write finding aids yeah. and things like that. So it's kind of that balance between, yeah, sure, trust your archivist, but don't yeah. entirely trust your archivist. Sure. <laughs> but, but it's always a good idea to talk to your archivist about, be open to what they suggest, right? right? So for example, I wrote an article years ago about these letters to Hedda Hopper, the old gossip columnist, mm -hmm. about James Dean. Um, letters written by James, distraught James Dean fans after he died. I went to the Motion Picture Academy Archive, the Herrick Library in LA, and I was looking at something entirely different. And I just happened to strike up a conversation with one of the archivists, and she said, oh, if you're interested in James Dean, I think there's something in this other collection over here about him. And if you just, if you didn't notice search for it over there, you wouldn't find it. And so I was like, okay, great. So they brought it out, and there's all these letters about James Dean, but it was not 
in any obvious way connected to Dean and the search. And at that time, this was right. this has been about ten years ago, so web searching was still a little, you know, a little rough, right? right. But I found this, and I, it was so incredible. I ended up writing an, an article about it. But you know, it's <laughs> it's one of those things that I I guess I say I say it's important to talk to an archivist, and and because I I I know people who don't do archival research or think they know archival research who think that it's a matter of coming in and like you are the sole, like you as the researcher are the sole expert on this and then right. you don't, the archivists are just there to serve you. And I, <laughs> and I find that, and I find that, uh, I find that a, a tragic misunderstanding of right. one's relationship with archivists and the archivist relationship with the archive. Uh, I just, in my experience, communicating with archivists is such a, rewarding addition to the research process because you end up learning more about the 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 archive and end up finding gems you didn't even know were there right and it's certainly i've had this happen a couple of times this week and i think it even happened with you to a point where as you're talking to me about your research and you're describing it and i'm coming to a better understanding of it mm -hmm. and what you're doing you know the light bulbs do go off to something obscure that stuck in my mind that would not necessarily make its way into a finding aid. For some reason I was reading a document or I saw something go by, but you know, it's one page in 90 boxes of material, mm -hmm. so it would never make its way into a finding aid as a use this to do it, but we can come up with those things like that. And, and, and that would be something that it could be entirely possible for me as a researcher to just in, in the haze of like, hour five or six of a, of a given day's research to just breeze past that document and not right. not clue into its significance or not right? even look at that collection because exactly. why would it be in there exactly right. exactly right. well you turn you you turned me on to that quote from that book oh yeah that was a weird one that was I mean, great I, I we had gotten a donation of books i was evaluating from whether they should go in the rare books collection or into the general library collection or whatever and popped one open to the foreword, which I almost never do. And it was all about Alaska and how it always puts on a good show. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have to tell Justin yeah. about this. Yeah, that's great. That's <laughs> but if I wouldn't have known about your research, mm -hmm. you know, if that would have come up two weeks before you arrived, I don't know that yeah. I ever would have remembered yeah. it. Yeah. For me, this is an important part. Like, this is something that you don't, you don't get from researching remotely. Sure, I could have, I could have not come to... Alaska, and I could have just emailed you and said, I'm looking for this kind of stuff, and you all would have found great stuff, but we wouldn't have had that dialogue that kind of helps each of us learn right. more about, like, the relationship between my research and, you know, this particular archive. Right. And I think that's really important. So that's, you know, I don't I don't turn down a chance to, to go visit an archive. Well, now that raises another question, because, of course, you know how expensive it can be to travel to do research. You're an academic, you're lucky enough to be at an institution that apparently supports some of that, or you yes. can potentially get grants it's to support Exceedingly rare, it. yeah. So, you know, and, and we see this a lot from the other side because there are, we have such strong Alaska holdings and there are a lot of people who aren't in Alaska who are interested in seeing them, and we can't digitize everything. Mm -hmm. uh, we would never even have the search mechanisms robust enough to be able to host things and find them for that matter. So what would be your advice to somebody else who's not in Alaska about, you know, how do you do this? How do you make this happen, this trip? Right. Well, uh, so I, uh, that's a good question. I, about a year ago, I, I led a 
a seminar for grad students at, at University of Iowa about the same issue. Mm -hmm. And the thing I told them, and this is something I've just, you know, I didn't invent this, but I learned this from a lot of really smart, savvy people, is that you always have to be hustling, right? Like you always, <laughs> you always have to have your, your antenna uh, tuned toward possible funding opportunities mm -hmm. and always be implying to stuff. You know, even if you don't think that you will have the time to actually go do the research in the next six months or so, doesn't matter because the odds of getting any funding are, are pretty slim, right? right? So you put a lot of stuff out there and, you know, hope that one of those things comes through and certainly don't try to time something perfectly because <laughs> the odds of something, you know, a specific thing you want, you know, coming through for you at the exact moment you need it are, I mean, slim to none, right? Right. So I also really think it's important to make use of networks. I and mean, this is another reason I'm up here is to network with you all in Archives of Special Collections, with with um, the folks in Amoeba, with some of the local media producers, because they may have connections, right? Um, right. You know, networking with, with academics at local institutions. Those are, those networks are really important and, and have been important for me uh, up to this point. I've been in the academy now for about 14 years. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of relationships I've developed over the years have involved you know, a kind of exchange of, of like helpful services, right? So mm -hmm. I've, on occasion, I know of a colleague's research project, I happen to be in a place where like, there's some stuff they need. So I, you know, will look for a couple of things on their behalf. They're doing the same thing for me elsewhere. Because yeah, we're all aware of the fact that we're all competing for scarcer and scarcer resources in mm -hmm. terms of funding. And we're aware, well aware of the fact that archives are, you know, like universities are seeing these like austerity measures being you know, restricting their ability to promote themselves and to digitize materials and to, to put things out. Or to even have open hours in some cases. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of archives cutting their hours right now and it's, it's hard. I mean, we do our level best to keep open during the summer because that's when I, we get our visiting distance researchers because a lot of them are academics or even tourists coming in who, you know, great-grandpa was in the gold rush. Can I stop by and see if you have anything about him? I know that happens to our colleagues in Juneau all the time. But this is also the time of year we like to be out and about in Alaska. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's a little bit of a challenge some days. As, well, how do you handle that? I mean, you're sitting here working in a research room that has windows to the outside world and seeing, it when, it's, <laughs> seeing when it's raining out, but also yeah. seeing when it's beautiful out, yeah. and you're stuck indoors researching. <laughs> Well, that is one of the benefits of being so far north in the summertime, right? Is that <laughs> at least, you know, when when things shut down here between four and five, I've still got a solid six hours which Easy. I can go outside and, and, and do things. Now, the, the downside is that then I can't fall asleep at night. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. I feel like last night, it's been, I've been up here for about three and a half weeks now. Last night was the first night that I truly slept soundly you don't have blackout curtains no i have blackout that? curtains oh, no. and, I didn't, and it didn't occur to me like it, it's so it seems so obvious now but it didn't occur to me at the, at the 
time when I was prepping right. to, you know, bring my own or to demand or request that, that there be some or ask, you know, if I could parse it just didn't occur to me. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll adjust in a couple of days and that, that hasn't been, that hasn't been the case. <laughs> I've been here for 16 years. I still don't get a lot of sleep in summer. I'm not sure. And I can sleep through anything. But but you probably make up for it in the winter, right? Like you oh. probably sleep a little bit more each day I suspect in the so, yeah. Yeah. To yes. my own dismay, unfortunately. So that's, I mean, that's, you know, for, for me as a researcher coming up here, like that's okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with, you know, for a month, being able to put in a full day of research and then still have a lot of time to go outside. And I've been doing a lot of late night, walk, you know, 11 p.m. walks around. <laughs> well, you can. And, yeah, you can, yeah. And then bragging to family and friends in lower 48 <laughs> that, like, you know, it's pitch black where they are, but it's, you know, it could be 3 p.m. Right. You know, here. Right. It just, it's so, it's so, it's so weird and, and awesome. Clearly we need to have a little hints and tips guides for our research, visiting researchers about what to bring or what they might ask before they come in terms of, yeah. of their housing. So you're staying at the dorms though here, right? Cause that yeah. is available in yeah. summer to researchers. And if I'm right, that's, subs it's not, it's not right. the top range hotels. But it does take you back to your undergraduate days. <laughs> which is may or may not be a good thing. <laughs> but it's it's significantly less expensive. It is so much more affordable. I cannot I cannot emphasize enough how how reasonable the rates are. I mean it's for I mean I'm I, I have a three bedroom apartment with a full kitchen, mm -hmm. uh, three bathrooms, lots of more space than I could ever know what to do with a garage. All of that for the entire summer was significantly less than what it would have cost to get even like a studio apartment through Airbnb for right. a month. Wow. And I, you know, I researched this for six months and I just, I was really depressed at the, like the Airbnb rates that I was right. seeing. And then someone recommended like, oh, you should look into, you know, student housing. And so I, I did. And the housing people have been fantastic. Great. And it, you know, it, Especially when, you know, we are on fixed budgets right. like that, it makes a, it makes a big big difference, um, and then it allows you to cut down on costs by you know making your own food and not having to go out to eat all the time, right. which is also in <laughs> yeah. Anchorage is, is can be pricey. Our restaurants are a little spendy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I like but to they're say, good. <laughs> I like to say, yeah, like I've had I've had like some of the best seafood in my life. I mean, more times than I can count up here. Like, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's back up to your topic. <laughs> sure. Uh, that was fun. That was actually on my list of questions, so I'm just going to back up a little bit. Yeah. So, um, okay, you've been with us, what, three weeks now, three and a half? I mm -hmm. am, you know better than I. What would you say are some one of the coolest or most interesting things you found, whether or not it pertains to your research? What What did you find that you weren't expecting? So I, I you know, I, I, you can look through the finding aid and... And the finding aids that I've that I've seen for the materials I'm interested in have been really thorough, like really helpful. Okay. Um, but it's also it's a but it's an additional experience to read through the documents of themselves, course. right? Of course. I didn't realize I, I came in expecting that the the Hillary Hilcher's the telecom tel project yeah the would be I mean it was, it was clearly expansive, right? Right. But I, I was so impressed at the extent of the work that she did, like mm -hmm. reading through the interviews with, I mean, she, you know, and, and hearing from, reading through the interviews she did with a lot of the, the pioneering media producers, telecom mm -hmm. industry figures in Alaska, 
and knowing, learning from from you and Kevin, just how few of those people are still alive. Right. right? So We've many lost of them have passed away recently. Just fairly recently. And just I I I I spent I think half of my time in the archive just pouring over those documents because they're so these are such rare things. Mm-hmm. I mean these interviews with these people and I something one of one of my great regrets in life is that I didn't interview a lot of the the elders in my kind of, you know, my spheres, my social mm-hmm. spheres until it was too late. Right. So to see a project that was so so invested in getting the oral histories from these people, getting perspectives that you you can't otherwise capture in a you know a correspondence right. between two people, right? Which is you know devoted to a particular topic that they want to address. Like getting getting that kind of um, those kinds of perspectives is really really key. Within that within that collection, one of the things that I'm really interested in is this military telecommunications project called White Alice, right? right? And uh, I found there was a, it was built in part by uh, Western Electric. And I found months ago, I found online a film that they made Hmm. that's all about introducing American audiences, by which they mean lower 48 audiences, to Alaska via White Alice. So it's a film Uh informing you about White Alice, but also informing you about like what Alaska is, right? Right. And it's from like 1955, 56, somewhere in there. And it was so intriguing to me because it's doing this, there's this dual level representation where it's it's doing the work of helping to shape popular understandings of a place through a piece of technology, right? Through this Mm -hmm. piece of, military, industrial, technological uh, infrastructure. And it's trying to balance this by talking about the tech, but also like, and this is Alaska, you know, and it's of course a lot of snowy mountains and like it's inhospitable, but it all serves to highlight the ingenuity of the, you know, the military and the engineers. And, and, you know, it, it, it does ring a few bells in terms of the way that it, it lionizes the the pioneer right Right. it's the frontier blah 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 but it's like this is talking about a place that's on the cusp of statehood right Mm -hmm. like those those wheels are are in motion right like this is seen as a distinct possibility so it's it's i think it's doing the work of trying to introduce this would-be state to a broader audience while also trumpeting american ingenuity and all those things so in this it's a lot of background right there. In in this collection, there are a couple of White Alice documents. The most interesting to me was a booklet produced by Western Electric that was promoted to schools and community groups in the lower 48 to accompany the film. Mm. So Western Electric would send you the film for free <laughs> and the pamphlet, and the pamphlet was meant to supplement the content of the film um, and so it's this really intriguing educational project on the mm-hmm. part of, you know, this big telecom um, production entity and the U.S. military slash government to shape media representations and popular knowledge of what Alaska is mm-hmm. at this crucial moment in its history. Right. And that's intriguing to me. And someone also commented that these big dishes look like um, 
uh, theater screens, which is a whole other kind of quirky. <laughs> they kind of do. I never thought do, about yeah. that. Especially when they're all covered with snow. It's right. Kind of, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of, but like on the, the side of The world's biggest mountain. drive-in theater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. In a place that would, like you yeah. never have a drive-in theater. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. Up so, on Anvil so Mountain. I mean, and that, and that is like, that, I mean, to me, to me, so much of the, the research experience is finding those gems, looking to what your predecessors have done, right. you know, taking stock of the work that people put in, like even in primary documents, like there's a lot of work that's gone into someone holding on to this thing, right? someone thinking, oh, this has value, right? Because we know that so little of what's ever been produced actually ends up making its way into an archive. Most of it's right. gone. Like that process itself is so fragile, right? That like I, you know, it's, I like to think about you know, what hands have touched this document, like who worked to, to bring this here, you know, like Hillary Hiltrick did this, you know, all of this work to track so many of these disparate things down and, and right. to see them as part of a, a, a cohesive whole. But, you know, the documents themselves become really useful, but then they also, you think about the trails, things they're connected to, and that leads you into other directions and makes you right. think about other, you know, other things that maybe hadn't, you hadn't considered before so i didn't i didn't even know this this pamphlet exists but this makes me think about now about a broader educational program around white alice and not just a one-off film right what else was going on and yep. where can i find those records yep. yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah it's all these little trails that you start following when you're doing the research i think everything's a hint to the next one so that's cool though generally what do you think is the most difficult part and you can be specific about us i'd ask that you disguise names and places if you're going to talk about some other institution <laughs> you can be brutally frank with us we're good with that <laughs> what's the most difficult part yeah i think the most difficult part is time okay like you just you don't have i mean you've seen me furiously photographing things you're inhuman i mean really <laughs> I, I don't know how you do it but like you literally don't have enough time to sit and, and read and process everything. Right. At, in a perfect world, you would have enough time to do that. So you would know like, okay, during this visit, is there like, what else do I need? Like, wh where else should I be looking in, right. in these collections? You have to, the reality is you have to do that over multiple visits because you just don't, you have to take, I have to take the stuff home and process it for the next couple of years when I, you know, in between working on the, the other, the other book, the dissertation, turning that into a book, um, and teaching and doing all that stuff, like you're, you're like, okay, sit with it, think about it. What does this mean? Where does it take me? How does it shape the way I understand? Why um, didn't I copy that other document? Yeah. And then at that point, you're like, you know, hey, Arlene, well, yeah, write exactly. email, like, you know, could you have a look in here for the, you know, for this thing? I think I might have missed something, but just not having enough time. You know, right. and it's like you you see those boxes and you're like, I know that there are fantastic documents in there and things right. that are going to play an important part in my my research, but I don't have time to process them now. I can take a photo of them and think about them later, but I mean, a month is in some ways a really long time. But when you think about you think about the fact that you you have maybe five to six hours of time per you know. Monday through Friday to sit with documents and even in there like you're 
brain needs a break. Right. It's not like you so. Can it's like do that you know maybe out. like you know four hours of like concentrated time. That's not you know that's not a lot you know to 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 go over materials. You know I I feel like I've been really fortunate in that I've I've been to I don't know how many archives at this point, but you know most of the major archives. Uh, related to media in the lower 48 um, UAA archive and I I've never had a bad experience mm-hmm. um, I've always found the archivists to be incredibly generous with their time super helpful the only the only bad experience I've ever had was at an archive back east and it's a big name archive so I won't I won't, Thank I won't you. identify <laughs> it but this archive was also part of a broader system that had seen just devastating budget cuts. Mm-hmm. And so basically, my understanding was that they had um, laid off most of their archivists and they just oh. had civil servants with no formal training right. um, handling the materials. And so on a couple of occasions, I remember the, the very first day I showed up at this place, I was looking for this crucially important collection by a woman theater producer she's like the most famous woman theater producer and she was a member of this super important theater group that was a big part of my dissertation and they came back to me and they said we can't find any of her we can't find the collection at all and mm-hmm. i was like oh this is this is dozens of boxes right and they're like well do you have it they asked me if i had it i'm like i just got here <laughs> why would i have it and they said and they just said well i guess it's lost and i was like you guess it's lost and a part of my heart just kind of broke um, but then, you know, the same, the same person, like a couple of days later brought out, uh, a clippings album mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, clippings are their own kind of mixed bag. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but they just, they brought it out as they were bringing it out. You could see the, the pieces of paper just falling out of right. it. Well, that's clippings for you. Yeah. And I just, I, I, I said, I said, like, stop, just please stop moving. Like, I'm not going to open this thing because it's just all going to crumble. And they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. And I was like, what? It doesn't matter. Like, what? And I had to remind myself, like, oh, they, they're, because of this particular situation, they're not especially interested in and certainly not trained in, like, document preservation or, right. or realizing, like, when a document shouldn't be go out. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I was just like, don't no, take it, take it back. I can't. Like, it's literally yeah. crumbling before our eyes. I mean, but that was, you know, that was, I feel like, an ex- a very extreme situation. extremely um, unusual. And that was yeah. something that the wider public knew was a bad situation. Right. Well, and that's why, you know, that's why it's so important to advocate for funding. Okay, there's only this little soapbox moment. But I have to admit, you know, we misshelf things. It happens, you know, sure. it, it always happens. Or we deliberately move them, and then you go back to your office to update the database and somewhere in between the vault in your office, you get sidetracked. And next thing you know, you've lost a little piece of paper that had the location on. Thankfully, you know, we can usually wander the stacks and we may have a glimmer of what the box looks like. And so we have a shot at finding it. But I think of some of the bigger institutions, you know, something gets misshelved. It's, it's going to be gone for a while unless you have people who can get back there and shelf read and nobody wants to shelf read. I went back there. I went back to the same institution Five years later, still lost. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's hard. And I put in, I put in a, a request. You know, right. it's like this is a really important collection. Like it's, it's got to be somewhere. And it, they, to my knowledge, they still haven't. They still that haven't actually worries me a little bit about the automated retrieval systems. Yep. 
you think that what if they do get reshelved in the wrong place or get the wrong barcode on the bar? Or there's a typographical error. Yeah. How do you do an inventory in a situation like that? So, yeah. 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 It gets interesting. Well, that's kind of the, the questions I was going on. I think of one thing, and maybe this is a good stopping point, is when you're doing this research, you keep finding all these trails. How do you know when to stop? You don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a uh, really quick anecdote. So my, my dissertation was on, it's on rethinking the history of, of method acting, and but doing it through reception discourse. So not acting theories, performance. It's just so diffuse that it's right. difficult to grasp. So I went on a archive tour for two years, and I went to the Ransom Center. Mm -hmm. um, I went to uh, the Warner Brothers archives in LA, uh, UCLA archives, the, the Herrick, the Motion Picture Academy archives. You know, I went to the Wisconsin State Historical Society. They have right. a big film and video collection. Several archives in New York. You know, the the Lilly Library in, in Bloomington, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I just went all around, and I just kept massing material. And after about two years, my dissertation advisor. Uh, reached out to me and said, just start writing. Like, you could research <laughs> until you're blue in the face. Like, you could just, you could go on forever. Right. But you just, at some point, you just have to write. That might be one of the benefits of being in your position, though, because you do have to produce. <laughs> yeah. So you have, yeah, yeah. You have, you, I mean, at some point, you just, you have to understand that you can't, you can't research everything. There's this, this great concept, um, uh, I'm totally going to butcher the, the French, but the uh, histoire total, like total history, right, right? Right, And And one of the things that my, my mentor, who's one of these important figures in, in uh, reception studies, talks about is that, you know, total, this idea of total history is, is great, and it should be something we strive for, but we always have to understand that you can never fully achieve it, but it should be something you should be thinking about all the time. Right. So understand and I think acknowledge where you've looked where you haven't looked right, right? And, and this is something I talk to my students about a lot is that the from the very outset of a research project the choice you make already delimits what kind of conclusions you can reach and what you can't reach right like you can't right. look at this collection and then be upset with it because it's not talking about a completely different topic <laughs> right because right. that's not what that collection is about right um, so those choices from the outset that you make just continue to narrow your um, the range of conclusions that you can reach and broaden the range of things that you, you can't conclude. Right. I find that the research process, which is so dependent on archives, is a process of negotiating all of the possibilities that the archive presents with the practicalities of creating a 20-page journal article or right. a book chapter or a, a book, right? Um, and the timelines that are involved in, in producing those things. And it's always a, you know, it's always some, a, a give and take. And mm -hmm. one of the nice things about the summer is that you have, there's a little more flexibility to, to really throw yourself into the research. Right. And then in subsequent trips, you can have a more focused, you know, plan of attack for, you know, this institution, that institution. So you're coming back? Oh yeah. Oh great. Yeah. <laughs> it might be. It might be. Uh, it might be a couple of years. Okay. Um, I think next summer, my my partner just got a, a really nice NSF grant, and mm -hmm. she's going to be doing interviews with workers in agriculture in 
Monterey. So I think I'm oh, going oh. to spend oh, a summer yeah. in Monterey. Tell it's terrible. It's terrible. Oh, no. It's, you know. Uh, Does she need an aid? I know. <laughs> no, that's my, that's my job. Right? I see. Um, but if I go as a aid, you can spend more time outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. So, yeah, I think, you know, as we're, we're both professors and it's one of those things where we, I think we're going to be like trading off summers, which right. I mean, that's totally fine by both you of us because we, yeah, well, and we've, <laughs> and we've absolutely loved our time in Alaska. Like it's just been absolutely wonderful. So like it, it, the people are very nice. The landscape is extraordinary. I love the fact that I can wear a, a, a poofy coat in <laughs> late June <laughs> and not immediately burst into flames. <laughs> Back in For Tulsa. some of us, that's a bug, not a feature. <laughs> sure. sure. Well, I don't have to. Yeah, I can, I can bail before, you know, winter comes. Right. right. Um, but, you know, it's I just look at the temperatures in Tulsa right now and it's oh, like, yeah. oh, 95, 100, 95, 100. OK. All right. 65 uh, isn't so bad. Because, <laughs> really you know, I'll, I'll get to the 90, the 90s and the 100s soon enough. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really soaking in all of this like wonderful weather and good people and great environment. <laughs> thank you so much well thanks Arlene it's it great it was fun yeah thank you for joining us for this bonus episode of archiving AK for the next episode Veronica will be interviewing our colleagues at AMIPA the Alaska Moving Image Preservation Association AMIPA is a nonprofit archives that shares the archive space with us and they focus on collecting audio and moving image materials as well as doing preservation work with those types of media Veronica will be talking with them about the work they do, the people they serve, and the challenges of working with these types of media.